Well, if you have a Bible, I would invite you to turn to the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Mark, page 717 in our church Bibles. That would be of some help to us this morning. We're going to read the first 12 verses of Mark chapter 12. Let's hear the word of the Lord. He, and this is Jesus, he then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, They will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read this scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they looked for a way to arrest him because they knew he had spoken the parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word, and may God give us understanding of it. If you would, just bow with me, please, as we pray. God and Father, we thank you for the privilege of public prayer. We know that because of Jesus, we have full access to your throne of grace and power. We also know, God, that nothing comes to you by way of surprise. So we take Heather Strand, and we place her at your feet. And we pray, God, that you would have mercy on her as the doctors are seeking to regulate her blood pressure. We pray to that end, that the medicine or your mighty power, one or the other or both, will bring peace to Heather and her blood pressure will be what it should be and that your mercy will be extended over her and John and their new baby. And we would pray this, Father, for Jesus' sake. And of course, God, we need everything now at this moment so that what takes place does what the song, the last song that we sang will do. We bring all glory to Christ. And we ask this for his sake. Amen. Well, it's been a bit of time since we have opened up Mark's gospel. And in that, I thought it would be good just to remind each other that this is a gospel. And the word gospel means good news. In fact, in the very first verse of the very first chapter of Mark, Mark says, this is the good news about Jesus Christ, God's son. And so what we have here in Mark is the good news of God's forgiveness as long as we're being completely honest about the bad news of our sin, which means a lot of things, but especially it means when a gospel is preached, taught, or understood, 
we need to stay far, far away from the line of instruction which says, hey, you know, you're almost there. You just need to try a little harder. Or, hey, keep away from them there and you'll be much, much holier. Or, hey, look at those rascals as in the, the religious authorities. Hey, look at those rascals over there. We are so much better. Rather, it is to be honest and know what is needed we cannot provide. Therefore, we need a Savior, and we have one only in Christ in order that all of our thoughts and our feelings and our confidence and our hopes and our righteousness will rest solely and without any question at all only on the finished work of Christ on the cross so that we might say what Paul says to the Galatian church. We glory in the cross, and we put no confidence in ourselves at all, no confidence in our flesh. That's the good news. Hey, I am horrible, but God will respond to that with something wonderful, his son, because his son receives sinners. That's those who are honest about who they really are before a holy God. Christ receives sinners so that he might pardon sinners. He receives sinners so that he might be merciful to sinners, which gives indication that when a person rejects this Jesus, because there are always other Jesuses being offered, But when a person rejects this Jesus, the question becomes, why would they reject such love, such honesty, such generosity, authority, and compassion? Why would they do it? So in the French philosopher Jean-Paul Sartre, he began to describe the beginnings of his doubts about God. He was a young man. He walks into a French cafe, and this is what he says. I walked into a cafe alone. I sat down. I ordered something to drink, and then I noticed this man on the other side of the cafe He was also alone, a glass of wine in front of him. I saw him, and he just stared at me with a cold, compassionless stare as if he was drilling into my soul and stripping me of all my value and dignity. That's what I felt. He said nothing to me. He just stared at me as if I was stone. And it suddenly occurred to me that God looked at me just like that, seeing through me the beginning and end of my life, stripping me of all my value and meaning. And Sartre, who was an existentialist, he actually began that whole philosophy, which influenced millions and still does. And actually, sometimes it even creeps into the church because existentialism is, is essentially, in all points of my life, I begin with me, myself, as the highest good and as the highest authority. That's who Sartre was. He goes on, as a human being, I couldn't bear that. And because God was like that, I decided I would hate God for the rest of my life. And he did. So although his cousin was the famous medical missionary, Albert Schweitzer, although his best friends during World War II when he was a prisoner among all the fellow prisoners were priests, although he once wrote that God does not exist, I cannot doubt, but that my whole being cries out for God, I cannot deny. Yet even in all that, he held to his own view of what God was like, which began in that cafe. And you know, it's not any different than the people that Jesus is speaking of in this parable. Because believing wrongly about God is just as wrong as believing in no God at all. We need to understand that. Believing wrongly about God is just as wrong as in believing there is no God at all. So Jesus tells this parable. A parable is a kind of an earthly story trying to give a spiritual truth. So in this parable, the hope is is that we're going to get a clear picture of what God is like. And that's the question that we're going to answer, or try to answer this morning. What is God like? 
And would have been great if you think about these things that in that cafe, you're with John Paul and he's got his conclusion. But wouldn't it be great if you kind of walked up to him and say, I'm going to order a couple of Cokes and we're going to have a good conversation and smile and say, no, no, John Paul, this is what God is like. And he would say, well, how do you know? Then we'd open our Bible to Mark chapter 12. We'd start there and we'd say, have a look at God. Have a look at God. So there's a context here. The primary recipients of Jesus' parable, the them, if your Bible's open, you'll see this, the them of verse 1 is the they of verse 27, chapter 11, and they are the religious authorities in verse 18 of chapter 11. And why those things are so important to know is that they say, the religious authorities say, they are speaking for God. They think that they are leading rightly for God, and they are confident that they know what God is like. However, along comes Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and he says he was sent by God, and he is exactly what God is like, which creates this white-hot situation. Begins there in chapter 11, verse 15. 24 hours before chapter 12, Jesus goes into the temple. He drives out those who are buying and selling. Verse 17, this is what he says. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you've made it a den of robbers? So Jesus has halted worship. He has halted the sacrificial system. He called the temple a den of robbers. He has confronted the leaders. And as you might expect, the temple leaders will say with a fury, which will eventually give way to murder, chapter 11, verse 28. Here's the question. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to do this? In other words, they look at Jesus Christ, this Galilean carpenter. They kind of size him up and say, who do you think you are? Who gave you the right to do what you're doing? Who gave you the right to say what you are saying? And in that, there is an impasse. No surprise here, because that's the kind of thing which happens in Christian relationships, Christian marriage, families, Bible studies, churches, where there appears to be an impasse. Hey, who's right? Who's speaking for God here? Who gets to say what God is like? Therefore, some 72 hours before Jesus will be judicially murdered, he gives this parable, which is actually a reworking of a parable told 800 years before by the prophet Isaiah. So Isaiah says to God's people, the nation of Israel, and he pictures them as a vineyard, which God carefully planted and God carefully protected. Israel enjoyed a favored nation status with God. And God told them near the beginning of the Bible, out of all the people of the earth, I am choosing you, a a precursor to the doctrine of election. You are my people, I will be your God. And God made promises, covenant promises to them, which meant later on that he would rescue them from slavery in Egypt. He'd take them across the Red Sea miraculously and give them the land which Jerusalem was its capital. And God is so good to them. Out of this relationship comes blessing and guidance and peculiar favors that no other nation knew. And because of this, they were to be a blessing to the world. So people would look at them and say, oh man, their God is so good. He's so wonderful. They're cared for so well. He's so kind to them. He's so generous to them. His wisdom and his faithfulness is unmatched. Who is this God exactly? We'll tell you. Hey, people from every place in the world, Come to this God. And yet, in the parable, which Isaiah told 800 years before Jesus will tell this parable, God, the owner of the vineyard, is grieved over the fact that the Israelites have produced no fruit and they show no gratitude. 
This is a lover scorn. They snub God's love. They misuse God's goodness. They refuse to obey God's commands. They don't go and tell. Rather, they stay and misuse his blessings. So in Isaiah, if you ever read it, there's a real pathos here, a real sorrow from God. God is like, what more could I have done for you? I've done so much and I'm looking for fruit and there's nothing. You're not on task. You're not declaring my praise to the world. Causing God to say, through the prophet Isaiah, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of, their worship of me is not, it's not for me. It's for them. And you know, if you're a good, hardworking parent, and you gave your best to your kids, you, you would know something of this pain. You did everything you could for your kids. You emptied yourself over the years of your life, time, energy, money, wiping, cleaning, helping, praying, teaching, repenting, giving, giving themselves, and the children grow up. They leave the home, and they have nothing good to say of the parents. And they have nothing to really show, at least at this point in their life. They do not say, thank you, Dad and Mom. We owe you our life. Thank you for such care and for such guidance, which was the very thing that the people of God had failed to do, telling others and showing others about the good, good father, which we sang about last week. And here now is Jesus in the temple 800 years later saying, things haven't changed. God hasn't changed, and they haven't changed. That's human nature. This is what every human is, beginning with myself, by nature. But our question is, what is God like? What is God like? Well, if you have your notes there, you'll see. First of all, God is generous. God is generous. Uh, The generosity of God. He provides everything the tenants need. Chapter 12, verse 1, God plants a vineyard. Right? He plants the vineyard. He provided everything they need in the vineyard. He did it for Israel. He did it for the world. Verse 1, a vineyard is planted to fulfill God's call to work. That was Genesis 1, right? And God gives, verse 1, a wall for protection. Also, a press to create product. He puts a watchtower in there for security. They can sleep safe at night. And loved ones, the emphasis here is the completeness and the totality of God's loving care. He misses. I just had to make it. was not my watch or somebody else's watch. I'm sorry. It's not my watch. Okay. It's all right. Is it? No, it's not. All right. Sorry. The point is, is that God misses nothing. The vineyard is totally equipped. It's beautifully created. Everything needed to function and to thrive is given by God in the vineyard. And so someone's thinking, hey, you know what? That sounds a lot like it was at creation. That's right. And someone else is thinking even more. And you know what? They say, that sounds a lot like my salvation. And of course, the answer is yes. And see, what we need to know, this is a timeless truth on what God is like, which speaks into the very beginning of creation and speaks into our salvation. In other words, it speaks to every age and to everybody, which means the parable and its meaning extends far beyond a criticism of the religious leaders. We are all implicated here because we by nature behave the same way. We are all by nature like these tenants. The gospel is a mirror into our lives. So yes, his audience is the religious leaders. But remember we said this is a gospel. And so it's truth and this parable is for everyone. So God has provided all that we need and more besides at levels for us that he knows best. 
But sometimes we want more. Sometimes we live like God won't give anymore. And often we live like he isn't around anymore, so we don't work the vineyard. There is no fruit. Or we think we own the vineyard. And we begin to shape the vineyard into our own image. Loved ones, God is rich and fertile and given us an amazing world. And, and yeah, there's suffering in the world. Yet inherent in the world is a principle of generosity which cannot be denied. There are friends, best friends, family, learning, food, work, achieving, caring, resting, falling in love, music, books, technology, the gifts of sex, children, grandchildren, sleep, taking walks with your husband, wife, kids, friends, all of that and so much more which reveals what God is like because God is behind all those things that I just said because it's his vineyard. So what is God like? God is generous. You can live like that and understand that. Number two, secondly, what is God like? Well, he gives responsibility, doesn't he? That's our second point, man's responsibility. So you see there in verse one and two that God's not nagging these tenants. The end of verse one is super clear. He rented the vineyard to some farmers and he went away on a journey. What does that mean? Well, it means at least two things. One, the religious leaders have been given something they did not create, that they did not earn, and they do not own. They are entrusted with the vineyard by the creator of the vineyard, God. And vineyards were created by the creator to produce fruit. These leaders have no fruit. They, and this is the second thing, they, like we, are stewards of the things that God gives, and they are not owners, and we are not owners as well. Therefore, human responsibility was to care for the vineyard. And fruit was an expected part of that care. And again, what was true for them is true for all of us here, and it's true for the whole world. We are given so much. I mean, do you ever, please tell me you have these moments somewhere on this planet where you're just so overwhelmed by the good things that you have been given by God and somewhere in your heart you know you don't deserve them. So it makes the whole occasion even more overwhelming. At least for me, I'm like, I know I don't deserve it. When is it going to be taken away? And I have to fight that thought all the time. Human responsibility. We've been given so much, a place, a space. We're given time, energy, choices, relationships, resources. And real responsibility, yet we are still free. Christians are entrusted with the gospel, which God has given to us, entrusted to us. And we have real responsibility there. Number one, God's generosity. He did everything well. And he gives so much. Number two, man's responsibility. Fruit is expected. It's at the core of what it means to be made in the image of God. Bear fruit. Bear fruit, Christian, for God. Third point, God's resiliency. What is God's lo- God like in light of that? Well, look at verse 2. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some, just some of the fruit of the vineyard. But they seized him, beat him. You see it there. Sent another one. Same type of thing. Struck him in the head. Another. Killed. Sent many others. Some of them they beat. Others they killed. I read this week of a private school teacher who did a project with a third grade class and she wanted to teach them about God, their creator, and men and women, his creation. So she put the kids in groups of six 
around a table, put a big plastic board. She gave them lots of Legos and plenty of Play-Doh and a few other things. And she said, make your world. Make the world that you want. Make it any way you want it. The kids did. And the kids worked hard and they made their world. They created people and houses and cars and trucks and rivers. It was great. I wish I could have been there. And then she said to the kids as they were kind of completing the world, she goes, all right, I want you to write down as the creator the kind of way that people should live, okay? I want you as the creator to write down how people should live in the world that you have made. So the kids started. They make their own constitutions for the citizens of the world they created. You know, they have to live in peace. They have to love each other and so on. You can expect those things. And as they were writing their constitutions, the teachers asked the kids, What would you do if the people in the world you created decided you, their makers, did not exist and decided that they would live in the world any way they pleased? Well, this is so funny because it was a private school. All of the kids got angry immediately. They had worked so hard for their world. In fact, one of the quietest kids in the classroom responded. It was a little girl. We'll rip their legs off. And so she grabs her Play-Doh person and just cuts it right in half. It's like, oh, little girl. See, thank God that God is more resilient than that little girl. And also with us, more than we are. God suffers long. I mean, I want you to think about this. God sent his messengers, not year by year, not decade by decade, but century by century. To, to collect fruit from the tenants. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Zephaniah, Micah, God's prophet, century after century. And the fruit of the vineyard that the prophets called for was the same fruit which the kids in the classroom wanted, obedience to their creator's instruction, which is the debt that we owe to our maker, to love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love those he created like we love ourselves. Sound familiar? So the choices are there, and we are free, and our freedom is overwhelming. You know, drive the car you want, but when you drive it, follow God's instruction. Pick a job, but when you do it, be thankful to God and give God glory in your work ethic. So many more. And loved ones, what the Bible shows us again and again, which I'm hoping that you'll see in this parable, is is man's rebellion in all that. That in spite of God's generosity, in spite of human responsibility, and in spite of the fact that God has so much resiliency with us, we show God our mutiny. That's our fourth point. Man's mutiny. These people placed in the vineyard, vineyard as tenants, but they want to take it as it's theirs. And they're trying to behave like they own it. Now, what is that? Well, that's called sin, isn't it? Every time you and I sin, big ones, little ones, I don't care, that is what we are doing. It is a mutiny against God. I'm in charge. It is, a, it is as if man, as man thinks the owner, God is the thief, and is robbing them, and he's using his servants, the prophets, to take the property, property illegally. That's what the tenants think. Who do you think you are, God? That's what we think when we sin, when we hear God's truth and reject it. Whether we hear it behind here, we hear it in our heads, we hear it, read it in the Bibles, whenever we see it, we, every sin is an inside job. It's rare that we don't know that we're sinning. And the trust that the landlord gives the tenants, totally abused. They use their freedom to deny the owner his rights. 
Because, and I hope you know this, as human beings, we do not like the idea of, of God, of a God who has the right to rule over us and to, to rule over our lives. I mean, we have enough trouble with authority as humans. We do not like the idea of having a head, God, over us. Now, we do want a God who will allow us to do what we want and then at the end make everything fine, right? So we can do what we want, and then at the end, everything will be fine. A God who pleasures us, but never makes any demands from us. So this summer, uh, one of our elder meetings, one of the elder's wives, she made this incredible rhubarb dessert. I mean, oh, I wish you all could have some of it. It was so good. And I ate a little bowl, and I could have ate 10 bowls that night. I mean, just, oh, so good. So I needed to know more about rhubarb. I just couldn't help it. I was like, why, what is, that's good. So I have a book at home. It's a gardening book, and I read about rhubarb. And listen to what it said. Rhubarb is a plant which resents interference. Okay? So when you plant rhubarb, you've got to keep things away. Rhubarb is a plant which resents interference. Do you understand that? That's these tenets. That's me. That's you apart from Christ. We resent God's interference. Stay away. And like the tenets, when his word of truth comes to us, we either want to kill the messenger or ignore God's message. And in that is mutiny. And here is at the height, verse 6. You see it there? He has one son to sin, one son who he loved, He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. And in that is Jesus' answer to the religious leader's question in chapter 11, verse 28. Who gave you the authority to do this? Jesus answered, God, because I'm his son. I'm his son. So God has so much patience. His love is so real that he sends his son, the son of their God, their creator, that they claim to represent. But verse 7, you see it? The tenant said to one another, this is the heir. Let's kill him. And the inheritance will be ours. So they did. And you see, what we need to see is this is no accident. They didn't kill the son because they didn't recognize the son. No, they do recognize the son. And that is why they killed him. You see, we are more fallen than we can ever really know. So don't ever say, you know what? If I was in the garden, I would have done a lot better job than Adam. Please don't ever say, if I was with the crowds when Jesus walked through earth, I would have done a lot better job than the crowds. Please don't say, if I was one of the 12, if I was a religious leader, I would have done a lot better job. Please don't say that. It is a mirror into us. I see myself in Adam, in the crowds, in the 12, and in these religious leaders. All the goodness of Jesus, all the love and beauty and truth of Jesus, right in front of them, right in front of us, and we have the audacity to say no. I have the audacity to say no to him. Apparently, I do. Apparently, I do. Let's get rid of him. Let's kill him so we can have it our way. So the tenants didn't want to enjoy the vineyard. They wanted to own the vineyard like it was theirs. They were saying, I am my own. I am my own. That's the great rebel cry of the human heart. I am my own. But it destroys Jesus Christ. It attempts to remove his authority. And it's the one principle of hell. I am my own. It is the one principle of hell, which is why the Christian faith 
will never be good news until we see the righteous anger of God in verse 9. Do you see it there? What will the owner of the vineyard do? How is he going to respond to this? They just killed his son. He's been so generous, so patient. He sends his son, and they kill his son. Verse 9, what will the owner do? Well, let me ask you this. What would you do if, like my friend in Austin, Texas, he decided he was going to rent out his house? He was a businessman. He wanted to try that. He had another home coming along the way. So they had some tenants sign up. He moved them in. They made some promises, signed some things. First month, nothing happens. He called. He said, what's up? Tenants made the promises again. Another 30 days, nothing. And you know, it put pressure on his marriage. I remember this. He was a good man too. Put pressure on his marriage, on his finances. A lawyer had to be called. My friend visited the tenants at least six or seven times. You guys made promises. And what about my cost here to maintain the home while you're in it? Okay, that's terrible. But imagine if my friend's life was threatened by the tenants. Or dare I say, I don't even like to say this out loud, but I have to say it. What if, what if they threatened to murder him? Or what if they actually murdered the owner? What would you do? Are we not more just than God? It's funny, in Matthew's gospel, the crowds were listening to the parable, and they're, apparently they're so into it. When Jesus asked the question, what will the owner of the vineyard do? They cry out, Matthew chapter 21, verse 21, bring those wretches to a wretched end. It's like the little girl. Let's kill them. Let's rip them in half. This is justice. I mean, we should understand that. And do we see the tenant's mistake? Remember, they thought because the owner was so far, far away and they had done everything they could to remove his presence, if you would, from the vineyard, they thought, you know, squatters' rights would kick in. I don't know. And then somehow the owner would stop being the owner. And loved ones, that is men and women's mistake. We think that God somehow will stop being God, but he won't. No matter how much people want God to stop being God, no matter how much people behave as if God doesn't exist, God cannot stop being God. I mean, just this morning, I'm out there putting out the prayer sign, and there's people driving by, and there's people, you know, with boats, and I'm, boats are great, but I'm wondering. I'm like, man, do you know Jesus Christ? Because it really breaks my heart that you can drive by this place probably a hundred times and you might be outside of Christ. And your destiny is what you deserve. But I don't want that for you. Loved ones, God cannot stop being God. So eventually God will bring judgment. What will the owner of the vineyard do? You see it there, verse 9, justice. Verse 9, justice. Kill the tenants and give the vineyard to others. God is a God of justice. I read two weeks ago from one of the founders of the Me Too movement. She was telling her story, and she was telling of all the terrible things over many, many years which were done to her. And one of the things I told myself is that there is a judgment coming. And that person who hurt her will have to give an account to God for what they had done. God will set things right. This is what the Bible says. Nothing in creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of whom we must give an account. And you should like that. It's a wonderful thing because it tells us evil does not finally rule the world. That evil will have a last day. Sometimes evil looks like it's just winning all the time. It's going to have a last day. And that means how I treat you matters and how you treat me matters and how we treat each other matters. And that means how this lady was treated matters to God. 
Because there is a day of accounting. And the risen Christ, by his resurrection, declares, I will raise everyone who has ever lived up, and there will be a day of judgment. Okay, but is that it? Because, Pastor Joe, that doesn't really sound like good news to me. God's been generous. He's been patient. There's judgment for those who rebelled against him in the vineyard. Because if that's the case, and I'm going to be honest with you, then if that's the case, I am doomed. I'm talking about myself right now. If that's the line, if the end's right there, then I'm doomed. Thank God there's a final point to the sermon. You see it there? God's mercy. Remember we said at the beginning of our time that Mark's writing a gospel, and the gospel means good news. Good news about the good news of God's forgiveness as long as we're being completely honest about the bad news of our sin. So where's the good news? Jesus gives it in verse 10. The first thing he does is really smart. He says, read your Bible. (laughs) See it there? (laughs) Haven't you read the scripture? (laughs) And what does he do? He quotes Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And what this describes, it describes what God is like. It's telling us that God takes hopeless, lost, pay attention here, impossible, desperate situations, just like the situation that these tenants are in, having killed the owner's son, and God turns the whole thing around. So yes, he is a judge, but God also rescues. God in Jesus has done the impossible. Amazing. He rescued people from the punishment they deserve. The cornerstone, right, of this new building is Christ. And Christ is the gospel. It is the good news of God's mercy extended to sinful people. So verse 10 is about people finding a foundation that they can finally rely on. The illustration is clear. It's a great block of stone in the temple. It's perfect, but the authorities of the temple, they've rejected it, and they keep rejecting it. And the stone's just lying there, and it gets in the way, and people have to move around it. But then the architect comes, the original architect, if you want. He comes back, and he sees the great stone. And he says, this stone, Christ, is going to be the foundation for the building. He's going to build. He's going to be the cornerstone. And so what happens is the psalmist looks down to history, to Jesus, who will be rejected by the people of Israel, not just the leaders, but by the people of Israel, So they will clash with him, which is exactly what is happening here. They're going to think his death will be the end of all this, but actually his death is the beginning of something beautiful. It is a new community, a new community filled, not real religious people trying to be better, but sinners who have repented and have been rescued and have been made righteous, made acceptable before God, made good tenants in Christ. Because you know and I know that God will rescue anyone who is trusting in his son, Jesus. So Jesus is just 72 hours from his death as he tells us parable. 72 hours, if you would, from the good news becoming into full fruition. Please tell me you understand this. That's why when you teach, preach this parable, it cannot be, okay, those religious leaders are bad. I'm so glad I'm not like them. They had what's coming to them. Yes, yes, they are bad. Yes, if they don't repent and acknowledge that Jesus is God's son sent into God's world, it's gonna be bad for them. But you see, loved ones, we are God's tenants in God's world. And yet Jesus says, I'm going to the cross to pay in death and blood 
so you can remain in the vineyard. I'm going to pay the debt that you can't pay, that you won't pay, so you can stay a tenant in the vineyard. You've done nothing to deserve it. I've been generous. I've been patient. But you've shaken your fist at me and your sin time and time again. But I am the owner. But rather than to come to you and judge you, I've come to pay for your rescue with my life. So Jesus takes the death that we should die in verse 9 on himself. He pardons us. And that's what God is like in this story. And thank God that that's what God is like in history. Now I have to ask you, do you believe that? He's generous, he's patient, he is a judge, but he rescues and he forgives. And anyone who says, I will build my life on Christ, this cornerstone, can. That's staggering to me. This is how I penned it out. You ready? We are the tenants, and we kill the son in our sin, but the son is dying for the sin of his murderers, us, so we can be set free and stay in the vineyard of God. That not the gospel? Is that not the gospel? It is beautiful. Let me end with two questions and a one statement and we're done. If you're a Christian, two questions for you. Number one, are you thankful for this rescue? Are you thankful for this rescue? And how do you bring your thankfulness to light to others? That's the two questions. Second, if you're not a Christian, thank you for coming. And I want you to consider these questions. Is this God's world or yours? And how is God being so generous to you, going to respond to you, living your life with no reference to him at all? How would you? I mean, think it through. How would you react to that? And if this is not important, and this is just some kind of like religious exercise to plug in and charge up, whatever, then why did God send his son Jesus to die? Why? Why? Then I have a question for all of us. How do you usually respond to something good which happens to you? Right? How do you usually respond? How should you? How should you? I'm getting older and creepier, but I can't help but not tell you this. When we we would have vacations as a family, at the end of the vacation, because we were parents and we didn't, you know, we had kids. We would say, okay, kids, did you have a good time? Yes, mom and dad. It was a really good time, wasn't it? Yes, mom and dad. And then we would say this. We would say, okay, remember, how do you respond to such goodness? And we gave them the party line with thankfulness and obedience. You could ask them right now. You could, how do you, re-? with thankfulness. Doesn't that make sense? God accepts those who look for mercy. And he rejects those who exalt themselves and look for none. And because there's no second chance after death, that's why this is so important. And that's why all the people out there are so important. Let's pray as we prepare to dismiss. Father, we, we glory in Christ. And with your help, we put no confidence in our flesh. And we plead his righteousness to cover our sin And we rejoice that his obedience will always outdo our disobedience and will always satisfy your justice completely. When our guilt is most terrible, Father, your mercy is is more free and more deep. And we thank you, Father. We thank you for this incredible gift.
Now may the love of God and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be yours in Christ, both now and forevermore. Amen.